Hello, I'm Oliver Wong. And I'm Jocelyn Brown, sitting in for Morgan Rhodes. You're listening to Heat Rocks. Every episode, we invite a guest to join us to talk about a heat rock, that album you just can't live without. Today, we'll be diving into Living Proof, the 1979 album by San Francisco's dance music legend, Sylvester. Like many visionaries, Sylvester James Jr. began his life as a singer in the church, but its rigid structures would not confine his spirit for long. Aware of his identity as a gay man from an early age, Sylvester sang with a mighty falsetto and lived an outsized, non-binary existence. Getting his start as a member of a musical cabaret troupe, the Coquettes, Sylvester became known for his solo numbers during their shows. It wasn't long before he struck out on his own as a vocalist, finding modest success with his third self-titled album. Opening for the likes of David Bowie, the Commodores, and Chaka Khan, his audiences grew. He'd soon pair with Patrick Cowley and the Weather Girls to create a sound reminiscent of disco, but somehow all his own with the album Step 2. The album featured the crossover dance hit, You Make Me Feel Mighty Real, and soon found him touring worldwide. On March 11, 1979, Sylvester would perform a sold-out show at the San Francisco War Memorial Opera House. With a full symphony orchestra behind them, Sylvester and his girls would captivate not just an audience, but a city. The performance was committed to tape in the form of today's album. He was given keys to the city during that evening's performance, and Mayor Diane Feinstein formally declared it Sylvester Day. The event served as a beacon for a city doing its best to emerge from dark times. But with the dawn of the AIDS pandemic looming, the fight would be far from over. Somewhere between choir practice in Watts and life as a working performer in the Castro, Sylvester found his voice and showed the rest of us what it means to truly live freely. He may have been given keys to the city, but he had long already unlocked the doors to a gender-fluid world and brought it into mainstream consciousness. Ahead of his time, he lived an uncompromising reality that the rest of us are only now beginning to wake up to, and the totality of who he was meant to be was already there in his voice. Living Proof was the album pick of our guest today, professor, creative director, journalist, producer, DJ, all-around musical maven, Jason King. He's the new chair of NYU's Clive Davis Institute of Recorded Music, the creative director behind Superlitude, host of NPR's video documentary series Noteworthy, author of the Michael Jackson Treasures, and perhaps most apropos for our discussion today, founder, DJ, and producer for the New York dance group Company Freak, which happens to include former members of Chic, which is awesome. I've known Jason for years now because of our mutual participation in the annual pop conference, and him and I have actually been working directly together to organize this spring's pop con. And believe me when I say, that the phrase, the hardest working man in show business is no cliche when it comes to Jason. People say that I wear a lot of hats, but if that's the case, then Jason runs a full-on 
haberdashery. Jason King, welcome to Heat Rocks. Thank you for that introduction. And hey, Jocelyn. Hi. Jason, we'd normally ask you what your introduction to Sylvester was, but I think I might already know the answer based on one of the videos that you created about Company Freak. That was the music that I grew up on. It's the music that I'm most passionate about, the music that I live for. I remember the first disco cassette back in the era of cassettes that I ever got was a KTEL uh, compilation called Disco Dancing, and there was music of Sylvester, and there was music of Andy Gibb, and uh, I grew up listening to that stuff and loving it and loving the passion of it, the uh, intensity, the fieriness of it, the excitement, uh, the fabulousness of the whole thing. So shout out to KTEL compilation cassettes, I guess? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that was, that was a big compilation cassette in my house. I mean, uh, I don't know. I, I listened to my parents' record collection a lot. I was, you know, they had everything from Roberta Flack to Led Zeppelin to Jimi Hendrix. And so I, I had an early diet of all that stuff. But in like late 70s, early 80s, you know, you had what was there. And there was this disco cassette that me and my brother would play all the time. And it had uh, Copacabana, Barry Manilow, can't yeah. forget that. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, Boogie Oogie Oogie, Taste of Honey, uh, Love is in the Air. But it had You Make Me Feel Mighty Real by Sylvester on it. And I... I you know, I was addicted to that song, but I didn't know anything about Sylvester, didn't know what he looked like. There was no internet then, so you weren't going to just like go on the computer and, and find that out. Uh, and it really wasn't until I would say the early 1990s. I'd moved to New York. I grew up in Canada, moved to New York. And then I kind of rediscovered Sylvester. I really discovered him for the first time. I just figured out who he was and what that song was. And then I connected it to the rest of his discography. What was it about Sylvester that just left, that struck you, basically? Uh, well, I'm a musician, and I love R&B music. I love groove. I love soul. I love funk. I love rhythm. Um, and that music is just, like, full of frenzy, ecstasy. It is uh, such a sophisticated kind of late 70s dance music. Mm. And to me, you know, what he was able to do um, from an energetic standpoint and just kind of in terms of being able to cultivate a kind of soulfulness on record. And then, of course, Living Proof, we'll, we'll talk about that because that's cultivating soulfulness uh, in the live space that then gets captured on record. Mm -hmm. I think what he was able to do is really second to none. I don't think there's a lot of people who are able to achieve the kind of gospel-infused frenzy that he was able to do in the context of dance R&B of that late 70s, kind of early 80s period. So that, to me just on a musical level. And, you know, I think it's also important to note that Sylvester is not always taken seriously as a musician. Mm -hmm. People understand him to be flamboyant right. and gender bending and so on and ahead of his time. But he's also, I think, ahead of his time from a musical standpoint. So that was part of it. And then also, of course, it was the identity aspects. To me, Sylvester represented pure liberation. Mm -hmm. He still represents pure liberation. Somebody who is totally free with them, themselves, himself. Uh, somebody who understood himself, his sexuality, uh, his race, his just who he was as a person. He was unapologetic. He lived free from stigma, um, even though he had every right to be sort of cornered by stigma. He seemed to exist outside of that. And so in general, I'm attracted to musicians like uh, Sylvester or Freddie Mercury or others who 
just seem to exist outside of the strictures of other people's expectations. And Sylvester did that in spades. Mm. Jocelyn, how about for you? You know, I can't really remember when I first heard Sylvester's music, but I, I can vividly remember the first time I really felt his music. Mm. Um, and, and that's because of one song in particular over and over. Um, that song has become really significant to me and really personal. I lived in New York City very briefly, and on a return visit to Chicago, I happened to walk into my favorite local bar, and a dear friend of mine was DJing, and he happened to be playing this song, and I just looked up into the booth, and he was just dancing his heart out back there. It was just this really frenetic moment of joy and it carried over from where he was clear onto the dance floor and in my mind that song has been his song ever since but it's also mine too in a way it's almost impossible not to feel good while that song is playing and that's particularly true if you're on a dance floor mm-hmm. I have to admit that this week was really my introduction to Sylvester, which is, I think, especially embarrassing as someone who got his start as a DJ in the Bay Area, where, of course, Sylvester in San Francisco in particular um, is, is I, I won't even say a local legend, just a legend, period, but certainly in San Francisco. Um, and so I was aware of his importance, but I never got into his music per se. And I think partly it's just that kind of era of dance music I never spent a lot of time with. So really, sitting with Living Proof, and just this past week was just a crash course lesson in, in Sylvester for me. And what was really striking, I don't mean to take us on a detour this early, but I think it's perhaps apropos here, is that it's just listening to his voice is so fascinating because he's singing in this falsetto, but it's not the kind of falsetto that I typically associate with the kind of sweet soul singers from Chicago or Philadelphia. It sounds very affected to me, but incredibly memorable for that. And it seems very notable, and I think this is something that Jocelyn was talking about in her intro, that he got his start as a as a public performer, basically in a version of cabaret, right? And not coincidentally, or maybe perhaps coincidentally, one of the night uh, nightclubs that he uh, was installed at and in San Francisco in the 1970s used to be called the Cabaret. It's one of the kind of really important discotheques in the city of that era. And so there's something about Sylvester singing that that does feel very um, Cabaret-esque in its performativity. But there is something about that performance I just find so striking for those reasons. Yeah, I think, you know, it's important to remember that he came from a musical family Right. His grandmother was a blues singer. Um, he sang jazz and blues basically all his life. He could sing in, in different voices. Right. So he had a what you would consider a conventional male voice. And if you listen to a song like Magic Number by Herbie Hancock, which he records a couple of years later in the early 80s, you know, he's singing in a baritone voice. Right. When the fool's rising, lights of clouds we're on. 
But he was very, very comfortable in his falsetto voice. And just to think about the use of his falsetto, it's not like he is singing in falsetto and then coming down into the break of the voice and then coming down into a traditionally male register. He stays in falsetto. And then from there, he only goes up and up and up and he yeah. hits those stratospheric notes, right? Yeah. So he, you know, that's a, it's fascinating in terms of what he's able to do from a kind of gender standpoint. Um, that he's really playing with our minds in terms of of breaking certain kinds of conventions of gender and even the way that the falsetto would be typically used. Right, right. But he is a syncretic artist. And by that, I mean, he merges all of these different styles. So I think what you refer to as cabaret, he would refer to as his instantiation in the history of black music, which is jazz and blues and gospel and R&B. And for him, all of those things are just, I think, as the writer Amir Baraka would have said, they're just personas of black music. Mm -hmm. And so on Living Proof, part of the reason that he's singing a song like Lover Man is because he can and because that is the kind of music that he was rooted in, that he heard in his family. Um, he talks at the time in an interview about being, uh, actually meeting Josephine Baker, who was one of his idols, and having a conversation with her. Um, he's also, he met with uh, John Hammond and Ethel Waters. He wanted to write a book in the late seventies about the history of jazz and blues music. So Sylvester was a real researcher and thinker. And I think the, the set list for living proof, including Loverman is his, is a sort of testament to that. So, Jason, you just alluded to this a, a moment ago about what distinguishes this album in particular. And I thought this was a really interesting choice because, for one, we haven't done a ton of live albums on this show. And it's also a live album that is mixed in with a lot of covers. So it's, I mean, certainly there's some like, Sylvester originals on there, but there's also a lot of other cover songs. Um, and the balance is, if not 50-50, I actually think there's maybe more covers, at least in the live portion of the album, more live covers than originals. All this is to ask, what makes this album a heat rock for you? Why did you want to pick this one to talk about? Well, I mean, you you know, when I think of heat rocks, I think of an album that really means something to you personally, but also just, a, you know, has a kind of exceptional achievement. And for me, of all of Sylvester's records, I love a lot of them for different reasons. But this is the one that I used to listen to over and over. No pun intended. Um, <laughs> but I used to listen to it constantly. Um, and... Part of it was really trying to figure out how he had been able, like just mechanically, how he had been able to put together a concert that could raise the roof in the way that it does. Like it's a really like house rocking album. I mean, the it's like, you know, the the level of energy and frenzy that he's able to generate, I think, is just second to none. And in terms of other disco albums. Uh, that are live. I mean, I don't think there are that many great ones. I think there's Donna Summers live and more. I mm -hmm. think there is Betty um, Betty Wright's live disco album, which is weird because it has canned applause in it. <laughs> this one seems to be so beautifully recorded, and um, it is such a testament to what he did really, really well. Which is first, he made these unbelievable club tracks like Over and Over and You Make Me Feel Mighty Real and Dance Disco Heat that will just never die and they just stand the test of time but he also was amazing live in concert and mm. thank god we have this recording which actually captures what he was able to do and everybody i talked to who went to concerts in that era and saw sylvester live says that even when he would be on these bills with like chic and all these other bands 
Like sometimes people would not know what to do with Sylvester because he would come on stage wearing a dress. You know, they didn't know who is this guy, like what's going on. And they said by the time he got to You Are My Friend, I mean, people were standing. He could always do that in a concert. And so thank God we have a document of what he was able to do. But the interesting thing about it is it's really, um, it's a curated document of his live concerts. This was done on March 11th, 1979 at the Opera House. And it was actually a three-hour concert. And, uh, you know, there's about an hour's worth of material here, really. And the fourth uh, side, if you listen to the vinyl version of it, um, these are studio recordings. Can't right. Stop Dancing it was a new song and an instrumental and so on. So what we have on this album is essentially a small version of what he was doing live. It's my understanding that besides the overture, he starts with uh, um, a kind of Joe Cocker-esque version of With a Little Help from My Friends, the Beatles song, which I don't think there's any live recording of that. Mm. Um, so work, he co-produced this with Harvey Fuqua, who was his longtime um, producer, and they made decisions about what to take from this three-hour concert um, so that it could fit on an actual double album uh, set like the one that we have. So I think the thing is, he it's a, that's why I say it's a really syncretic concert because he's putting together a lot of different styles, everything from this sort of like hard-driving synthesizer disco of that he and Patrick Cowley helped innovate to the jazz cabaret lover man um, to the kind of sentimental um soul pop of Thelma Houston and sharing something perfect for myself but it all seems to work and part of that i think is that the musicians themselves and the the quality of the arrangements keep everything consistent and then he's the kind of through line through it with that voice and with all of those incredible backup singers doing what they're doing Real quick, do we know if there's any surviving copy of the entire concert? Because presumably they would have recorded all of it just to be able to edit it down, right? They would have. I, you know, I have um, done some work with Fantasy Records in the past, and I actually did a Sylvester conference uh, at New York University, a two-day conference. And oh, wow. Okay. We did a concert. Yeah, we did a concert trying to recreate some aspects of Living Proof with Martha Wash actually singing and others, um, Billy Porter, Kevin Aviance, and others. It was Really amazing and a lot of fun. And actually, we closed with the same two numbers that are on the album, um, Dance, Disco, Heat, and You Make Me Feel Mighty Real. And I'll just say this as an aside. When we did that concert, Martha told me that when Martha Wash, who sings backup on, on the um, sang backup for Sylvester as part of Two Tons and Fun and sings backup on Living Proof, uh, she told me that when they did this at the Opera House, the floor was rocking. It was literally shaking up and down. I said, yeah, that's a metaphor. And then when we did it at NYU, the floor was rocking. It was literally shaking up and down. So I was like, she's, she was on it. She was on it. So when we did this uh, performance at New York University, uh, Fantasy Records sent over some tracks. There were some backing tracks that Sylvester had used on tour and so on. And um, some of that we integrated into the show so we could really get those Patrick Cowley synthesizers, which are pretty special and unique. But they didn't seem to have any full recording of it at that mm. time, or at least nothing that they would they would um, release. And since then, of course, there's been a universal fire and so on. So I'm not sure of the state of that or if there's if yeah. anybody actually has a copy of it. I don't, it's ne- it hasn't surfaced to my knowledge since that time. The 
this album came at a pivotal turning point, not just for Sylvester, but for disco as a genre and modern music as a whole. As an artist, it's clear that he loved many genres of music. Do you feel like this performance might point to an evolution of where he wanted to go musically? Oh, that's such a great question. I, I think it does. It is a transitional album for him in the sense that, you know, he had a couple of careers prior to disco, right? We talked about his journey with the Coquettes early on, singing jazz and blues. And then he had this rock moment when he was signed to Blue Thumb Records and he was fronting this rock band and he's doing these kind of soulful uh, songs and covers with a rock band in a, in, in a style that would be, I guess, considered a kind of glam rock. And then he finds disco, right? And disco for him becomes the moment in which he becomes mainstream and way more commercial. He wins Billboard's Dance Artist of the Year. And yet disco is a bit of a straitjacket for him too. And I think Living Proof is his attempt to try to show that he can do so much more than just disco. I think he was always doing this on tour. He was always doing covers. He was always showing people that he could do more than just disco. And actually, if you listen to any of his albums, there's always a mix of songs on there. I mean, he covers, you know, Peggy Lee's Fever. He was always trying to show people he could do more. But I think Living Proof becomes a real demonstration of that. Because it's almost as if all of the songs are treated equally. They're all on the same pedestal. Part of what he's doing here is really trying to show people that he is a versatile, multifaceted performer and not just one thing or the other. You know, by coincidence, and this is before we I even knew that we would be discussing Sylvester this week, uh, about a couple of weeks ago, I managed to finally locate a book that I've been hunting for for close to 20 years. Um, it's an incredibly obscure but completely amazing oral history of the San Francisco dance scene of the late 70s through late 80s. It's called Tribal Rights, and it has a very long interview with Sylvester in there. I mean, Sylvester is by far, I think, the most important artist that the book focuses on for obvious reasons. Um, and the interview was done, I think, probably around 1987, so about a year before um, Sylvester's death from AIDS. And he had this to say at this point in his career. So again, you got to remember, this is about close to 10 years after Living Proof comes out. He says, quote, I think I've transcended a lot of that in this, this is quote, a quote within a quote, black disco drag queen stuff by just persisting and working hard at becoming respected in my field. I'm not a gay act anymore. I'm a singer and an artist, and it's taken a lot of serious thought on my part and a lot of direction in my career to get to this point, unquote. And I think it's really worth noting that, you know, in this same interview, Sylvester felt like it wasn't until 1982 which is, I think, the transition point where he leaves Fantasy Records and then signs up with Megatone, which was a local San Francisco label, that he felt like he was really able to begin taking artistic control of his career. And so in a way, I think that this album, Living Proof, marks, in in a sense, and, and this goes back to something that Jason was just alluding to a moment ago, it marks the height of maybe his second act or third act. But it's really worth noting, Sylvester had many acts to follow you know, throughout the course of the 80s and that this, this album 
as important as it was, um, and, and this goes back to, I think, uh, Jocelyn, your question, it marks a transition point, not just for where disco and dance music is at, but really for where Sylvester was trying to take his musicality and artistry and autonomy. And I think that's kind of the important point that he was making in this interview. So I just thought that was worth sharing. Thank you for that. You know, I've, I've heard about this book before, and I didn't know that there was an interview with Sylvester in there. So it's really enlightening to me to hear you know, what he has to say about trying to transcend that level of identity and, and work toward a sense of agency within his artistry. That's really cool. Yeah. So let's talk a bit about his choice of cover songs throughout this performance. Ooh, Which yeah. other ones stand out to you and why? Oh, good question. You know, the interesting thing about it is I, I, I never think of his songs as covers. Mm. I always think of them as like complete restructuralist versions. I think of him as a restructuralist, right? In the way that Aretha was too. Aretha yeah, yeah. could take an existing song and she would completely restructure the musical, comp even the compositional foundation of the song itself and just turn it into something else. I mean, they're all standouts to me, but I, I would say um, the Barry Manilow, Could This Be The Magic, uh, Leon Russell, Donny Hathaway, Song For You, medley so first of all it's a cover of those two songs right. and then it's a medley of the two um and if that weren't enough it's also a duet with eric robinson who's playing keys and eric robinson um composer uh songwriter did a lot of work with sylvester wrote some of his big hits um but eric robinson is playing keys and then also singing with sylvester in this he has an incredible high first tenor voice yeah I think the thing that uh, that medley reminds me of is how theatrical and how kind of melodramatic Living Proof is from beginning to end. I mean, it starts with an overture, right? So he's already in theater mode. And then it's sequenced in such a way that there are these real kind of BPM highs where the music is like surging at like 146 beats per minute. And then he has these ballads and he just sort of takes you down into these ballads and you you know the energy quiets down but then it revs back up with this kind of like silent frenzy and so it mirrors in a lot of way like the experience of i guess going to a church or right the like you know that high energy gospel frenzy and then also these moments of just absolute tenderness and emotional connection that you hear on songs like uh, could this be the magic and song for you yeah jocelyn how about for you what's what's the answer to your own question I have to say, this version of the Beatles' Blackbird really made me consider the Beatles entirely differently. <laughs> um, and I know that's a big statement to make, but I I really had to sit with that a minute and, and go back and listen between the two. And I have a preference, and it does not involve four gentlemen. Goes <laughs> <laughs> like this. Again, talk about restructural. Like it completely changes the musical foundation. It's built around that 
kind of Eric Robinson piano riff. Killing it. Just killing it. And it's a, yeah, it's a complete rethinking of the song, but also that spoken intro with Sylvester and the Two Tons of Fun, which is Martha Wash and Isora Rhodes who are singing backgrounds. They're not, first of all, it's not even backgrounds. They're singing with him, right? And that's part of his intervention is to say, my background singers are not background singers. They are on equal footing as me and they're mixed into the mix like this at the same level that his voice is. And so there's a whole intervention there in terms of like gender and the relationship between men and women on stage and on the record itself and in the mix. But so the intro um, to that, to that track, it's so interesting that on the banter, right? He says, See, the first time I heard this song, it was in the sixties. And it was done by the Beatles. So who? The Beatles. Oh. That to me is like, it's a bit of a diss, but it's also <laughs> the fact that we are in the world of black R&B and disco and soul, and the Beatles are not the center of everyone's existence. Maybe Stevie Wonder, maybe Aretha Franklin, maybe uh, you know uh, Clara Ward, but not the Beatles. And so she says, who? And he says, the Beatles. <laughs> And I think also what's important about that is he positions it as a kind of message song. And he wants, he, he says this a couple of times in the banter, he wants people to get the message of the song. And so when you think about the history of this song, the fact that Paul McCartney wrote it about the four little girls who were, you know, uh, part of the, the bombing that happened in the civil rights movement. And he wanted to write a song that was about black women. Um, and this was his version of it, that I think he wants people to get that message. And then also his message through the song, which is that, you know, we all have to kind of fly, we have to spread our wings and that we have to be who we are truly. And I think that sets off the whole, the rest of the album in a really interesting way. Did y'all get the message? You sure you got the message? You mean you know what we're really talking about? We're going to do it for y'all flavor to make sure you got it. Well, we will be back with more of our conversation with Jason King on Sylvester's Living Proof after a brief word from some of our sibling Max Fun podcasts. Keep it locked. Are you riddled with guilt over your TBR pile? Are you filled with shame about a book that you just can't seem to finish? Are you having regrets because grad school killed your love of reading? We're Reading Glasses, and we're here to help. I'm Mallory. And I'm Bria. Let us absolve you of all your reading guilt. Stuck on a book you don't like? We'll help you dump it. Can't figure out what to read next? We'll recommend something in your wheelhouse. Can't decide where to buy your books from? We'll point you in the right direction. No matter what you read or how you read it, we'll help you do it better. Reading Glasses, every Thursday on Maximum Fun. We're back on Heat Rocks, talking Sylvester's Living Proof with Jason King. We briefly touched on Harvey Fuqua in the first half, and I would love to just dig in a little bit deeper. Uh, It's a bit of a tangent, but certainly still related uh, to this, and it's because Fuqua actually came up uh, briefly in a previous episode, the one we did with Valerie June from earlier this year, when we were talking about Etta James's At Last, and we didn't really have time to get that deep into it. But I just feel like he has to be acknowledged here um, on the show for a moment because he has had, to me, one of the most 
fascinating careers of any kind of behind the scenes musical figure that I can think of. Um, this is someone Fuqua got to start uh, in the 50s in the duop era with the Moon Glows, which was one of the first groups that Marvin Gaye uh, was a member of. He duetted with and briefly dated Etta James, quite, uh, you know, I think famously known, and was very pivotal in helping launch her career. He then married songwriter Gwen Gordy of the Motown Gordy clan, helped Anna Records get started, went over to Motown to help A&R, brought them the spinners, brought them Tammy Terrell, produced Ain't No Mountain High Enough and, and a bunch of other Terrell and, and gay duets. And then in the 70s, he switched over. He was behind the new birth. He was behind the night lighters. He helped to reinvent uh, or at least kind of rediscover in a way Sylvester and the Weather Girls. And then by the early 80s, he was back with Gay helping to produce Gay's last album, Midnight Love. That resume is incredible. And I feel like unless you spend a lot of time reading the liner notes, you may not really be aware of who he is or, or, or what his name signifies. Uh, but as someone who reads a lot of liner notes, like Fuqua's name is on so many of my favorite songs and favorite albums. And like I said, had just, I mean, we're not talking about in a single generation, a multi-generational incredible career and just seemed to be everywhere at once. I just feel like we got to talk a little bit about Fuqua and like what made him so significant. Yeah, he, um, you know, the career is incredible. He's one of those kind of Motown journey people who just like is in everything always. And, um, you know, I think just never really got his due in some, in some ways. He and Sylvester had a contentious relationship for sure. Mm. Um, and I don't know if it had to do with Sylvester's sexuality or just the personalities um, but they definitely did not get along very well. Yeah. And um, they, you know, were at each other's heads a lot. But Harvey found the right sound for Sylvester, right? By putting together the right musicians, by understanding how to also let Sylvester be himself in the studio and to capture the energy of Sylvester's performances, which I think the Blue Thumb records, the earlier rock stuff, just didn't capture in the same way. So Harvey, you know, deserves a lot of credit for that. And for Living Proof, they're listed as co-producers. And, um, you know, it's interesting to think about Harvey's role in sequencing the music. I think there are more important people on Living Proof than Harvey. Yeah. I think Leslie Drayton, who did the arrangements, and Leslie came, came from Earth, Wind & Fire. Mm -hmm. um, the arrangements are just like, no pun intended, fire. Yeah, on, on Living crazy. Proof. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they're unbelievable. Um, but Harvey deserves a lot of credit for the production itself because even just listening to the way that the audience is present in Living Proof in the mix and the way that the audience comes up and comes down and like you really feel the presence of an audience in a way that I think is partly the result of the producer and, and, and the mix. Um, but Harvey, yeah, Harvey, you know, interesting personality. And I actually met him several mm. times because we were on the same board of the R&B Foundation, which is a board that Barry Gordy set up. And I served on that board with a lot of other people. But Harvey was there, and I would I, I talked to him about Sylvester. One time I said, I would love to have a conversation with you one time about Sylvester. And he's like, why would I want to do that? That was the only <laughs> thing he said. <laughs> so that's my Harvey story. That's unfortunate, but it tells you a lot about the relationship, to go back to your previous point there. So now bring this back to Living Proof and Sylvester. Jason, what is the fire track off of this album for you? What is the song that to this day, you know, what, 30 plus years later, 40 plus years later, still gets you hype? I think that has to be the final track. You make me feel mighty real. At least the final track on the on the CD version of it. Yeah. Um, so this was Sylvester's big hit song, of course. Um, it was the song that Robert Criscow, the writer, called um, 
Disco's great gift to pop. There's a couple of reasons why I love this. First of all, it is a barnstormer. I mean, it is like the the tempo is like 146 beats per minute or 147 around there. I mean, it is just like adrenalizing. You really get the feeling and the energy of what's happening. And part of that is because um, in terms of the recording, there are all of those like open mics. So Martha Wash just in the background, just just singing and like everybody's just doing their thing. But it's really a kind of ensembleism, right? It's like this collective, like there's this moment of frenzy and ecstasy where everybody is just hitting at full blast. And I think that's what this captures for me that is so exciting. And then it does a kind of repeat of what happens on the original recording of it, where there's a up-tempo version, and then there's like a second version, which is a slow drag, slow burn. I mean... I don't even know how to describe it. It's just pure, pure joy, ecstasy, sharing, ensembleism. Um, you know, it's the collective, the black music collective at its best. So this also would have been my choice here. You know, it's the song for which Sylvester's best known. But in that moment, it gets taken clear across the dance floor, up the aisle and into the pulpit. <laughs> and it takes this almost hymnal turn, hearkening back to his beginnings in the choir. And it's almost a cleansing by fire for everyone in the room. It's funny because this was my um, my second choice for for fire track. Uh, that and happiness, I thought both had just incredible energy and in, in all the things that both of you have been talking about. But my gut choice for for the fire track, uh, it goes back to Blackbird, and I think it's partly a combination of. I mean, Eric Robinson's piano work on here is just a monster. I mean, it's a monster that riff that he that he cooks up. Blackbirds, Patrick, you got some blackbirds from me. I love it when the piano more or less does the work of the percussion section. So even though there are drums on that, it's the piano that you're that you feel right. That it, it's just the propulsiveness of the song is is off of Robinson's piano. Um, and and this go you know you go, you all both touched on what makes Blackbird such an amazing reinterpretation cover whatever you want to call it you know and it's certainly there's the Beatles produced enough kind of modern standards that there are a lot of different looks that other people have given it um, but just the kind of joyfulness and this to me at least the surprise element of the interpretation here um, just puts Blackbird over the top for me. 
Jason, what would you say your favorite moment on the album would be? Oh, there's so many moments that are great. I mean, I love uh, sharing something perfect between ourselves. It's a Thelma Houston kind of B-side. I don't think a lot of people really know, um, but he covers it and he dedicates the song to his lover, right? That's like the first line of it. This song is dedicated to my lover who's here tonight, who I love very much. And this song is all about sharing. How many R&B songs of that era do we have where a man is dedicating a love song to another man? I just That's a bold moment right there. But I think that song, his interpretation of it is beautiful. And it's funny because just like with you, uh, you are my friend, he really wants to get to the part where everybody sings together. Like he's just, the verses are cool, the chorus is cool, but let's get to the we are sharing part, right? Because that's the part where everybody's going to get to sing. And then he turns it over to Martha Wash and she's hitting those outrageously beautiful soprano notes. But I still feel like we got something perfect going on. It really demonstrates that Sylvester's key thing is about compassion. It's about sharing. It's about friendship. It's about love. He had this vision of wholeness and people coming together that he was able to achieve, not just in his music, but also in the very way that he organized his concerts. His relationship with his audience is also about sharing. But for him, it starts with his dedication to his lover. Jocelyn, how about you? There is a really beautiful moment during the rendition of Patti LaBelle's You Are My Friend, where Zora Rhodes and Martha Wash each take a solo. I don't know if y'all have noticed it or not, but these women can sing, y'all. Honey, your ear has to be in your foot to not hear these women can sing. And you can almost hear the trajectory of kinship that they have with mm. Sylvester and the way that they're emoting. Mm. I've been searching everywhere. All the love, all the understanding, I found it here. can feel that they're singing from a place of shared and lived experience and it's just super strong. And I've always really loved that Sylvester very knowingly and wisely chose to work with them, both due to their vocal roots from the church and for what I'm sure were shared experiences as outsiders in a very narrowly defined industry. 
I've connected with that kinship in a way on a personal level. You know, when you think about Sylvester, you kind of have to reckon with the fact of here's this man who's in this larger body in this very flamboyant dress singing and living out loud. And who is he going to work with? You have to have someone who can match that same level of power. And these two women both very much did but they're not packaged in some stereotypical cookie cutter way that you see female vocalists packaged at this time. These are big women and they're out there doing their thing and doing it better, might I add, than most people. I relate to that in a sense because, you know, I am a black woman in a bigger body and you're in this space of a predominantly white industry which I'm sure the music industry had to be at the time. And it takes a lot of courage to be who you are in those moments. And they're calling that up again, night after night after night, all under different circumstances. So you hear all of that. This was a hard one for me to answer, and I think it goes back, and, and Jason, you actually picked a great example of talking about how you know you can sense that where Sylvester wants to get the audience is that point where everyone gets to sing along. And I think live performances are all about creating as many moments as possible because that's where the energy and the excitement is. And so picking you know what is the best moment on here is extremely difficult because the whole album, the whole experience is engineered to produce those. But I think if I had to settle on one, it is the turn in the medley, right, of Barry Manilow's Could Be Magic and Leanne Russell and uh, slash Donny Hathaway. And I, I always feel bad because I forget that it's Leanne Russell's original. But to me, Donny's version is so transcendent. I just kind of give him the credit. But it's the turn in that medley when you realize they're bringing in a song for you. Because previously, I kind of recognize, oh yeah, I think this is that Manilow joint from like the early 70s. And all of a sudden, the, 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 that's the first set of verses from a song for you come on. And you can hear the audience reacting to it because they start clapping. Would this be the magic at last? Baby, I want you. And I think it was, and I'm sorry, I forget if it was Jocelyn or Jason who made this point when we were talking about the medley in the first half, but the fluidity between how they take these two songs and blend them together in a way that sounds so organic that you would never even realize it's two completely different songs being into one. I mean, I think this is just a masterpiece of medley work, uh, if such a thing could, you know, can be said to exist. Uh, and so that for me is just, you know, the, every time that that song comes on, that moment, I'm like, woo, I just love that. Just love that. Jason, if you were to run into someone, and that could perhaps in this case include like me, but who had never heard this album before, actually who had never heard of Sylvester before, what song would you choose off of here as an introduction to Sylvester? Hmm, that's a great question. Um as an introduction to Sylvester, 
I think you probably want to hear Dance Disco Heat. Mm. And the reason I say that is just because I think what Sylvester was really, really great at is merging his kind of gospel-influenced background and style with like funky R&B musicianship in the context of electronic disco, right? And so Dance Disco Heat is the merger of all of those things for me. That song to me really captures the way in which Sylvester was always trying to deliver this sort of collective configuration. Sylvester was interested in the whole. He was interested in wholeness and always producing a radical vision of wholeness in which everybody was interdependent on everybody else. So I have to ask, what three words would you use to describe this album or Sylvester as an artist? The three words I would use to describe this artist, convivial. Ooh. It is definitely like a party. And I mean, he would have said that too, right? It's like, this was happening on a Sunday night. It was like, let's get it all out before Monday morning before you got to go back to work. Um, I would also say another word to describe this is generous. It's a very generous album. I think he moves to excess all the time. Like he really wants to give you more. And then finally, I'd say the last word I would use to describe this album and to describe Sylvester's work is, is frenzy. And sometimes I think frenzy could feel like a negative word in the sense that maybe we think of frenzy like frenetic. But I think of frenzy as a quality of being able to cultivate energy that is really, really at the center of a lot of black music. And I think Sylvester among all other things, was a master at summoning and cultivating frenzy in live performance. I'd like to say God bless you all. I love you. My name is Sylvester. Thank you so much. God bless you. We love you. Well, before we jet out of here, we always want to leave our audience with another strong recording to step two. And so we have some recommendations for the next uh, listening that you should partake in. Jocelyn, you want to start us off? I would like to recommend two picks, if I might. Um, Sylvester's Stars. It's a brief four-track sampling of his work that kind of shows the breadth of, of what he musically likes to do. You're kind of traversing his musical universe and one of my favorite tracks of his, I Need Somebody to Love Tonight, appears here. Another one that I'll mention is a standalone song, and it's attributed to Patrick Cowley featuring Sylvester, um, where they're working together, and it's the song Do You Wanna Funk? Um, both of those songs are just exactly what anyone wants in a great dance song, and I've returned to both of them again and again. Do you wanna funk? Do you wanna funk? Won't you tell me now? 
for me, I would recommend people check out Sylvester and the Hot Band's Blue Thumb Collection, which is an anthology from um, his, I think, the first two albums that he put together with his band. Uh, I think Eclectic would be underselling uh, what those what the music on there sounds like because he touches on such a vast range of soul and blues and funk and pop and jazz and rock tunes. Uh, amongst other things, he does an absolutely mesmerizing version of Wider Shade of Pale, for example. Jason, take us home. I say you have to listen to All I Need, and that's uh, Sylvester's 1982 album that was released on Megatone. So he had mm-hmm. left Fantasy Records and he moved to Megatone. And a lot of the arrangements on All I Need are done by Tip Werrick or James Werrick, and who is Sylvester's guitarist who also plays on uh, Living Proof. Um, and so this is the album that contains Do You Want a Funk that Jocelyn just mentioned, which was Sylvester's big hit with Patrick Cowley that basically inaugurated the era of high energy, which was this really, really up-tempo, electronically produced post-disco music. And that has influenced almost everything else, including Eurodance and and all all kinds of other musics. But this album is gorgeous. I mean, the arrangements on it, songs like All I Need and Be With You and Don't Stop, there is not a single bad moment on the entire album. And also the cover work is a sort of classic in Afrofuturism. It's Sylvester kind of painted as this sort of sphinx. So that to me is one of the great Sylvester albums um, and maybe one of his greatest studio albums. Well, that will do it for this episode of Heat Rocks with our special guest, Jason King. Jason, what are you working on now besides helping uh, me with the uh, PopCon in April? <laughs> uh, I'm doing a bunch of different things. I'm doing um, the, the one I really want to talk about, though, I'll just mention is uh, I'm working on a biography of Freddie Mercury. And it's a revisionist wow. biography of Freddie looking mm. at his African and Indian roots in, in a lot more detail than we've seen before. And where can people find more about you online? You could check out Jason King online for more about me. And you can also just check the Clive Davis Institute website. And my bio's up there and ways to get in contact with me, too. You've been listening to Heat Rocks with me, Oliver Wong. And me, Jocelyn Brown, sitting in for Morgan Rhodes. Our theme music is Crown Ones by Thess One of People Under the Stairs. Shout out to Thess for the hookup. Heat Rocks is produced by myself, Morgan, and human Swiss army knife Christian Duenas, who also engineers and edits our show. Our senior producer is Laura Swisher, and executive producer is Jesse Thorne. We are part of the Maximum Fun family, normally taping live in their studios in the Westlake neighborhood of Los Angeles. Though currently, we're all taping safe from home. If you have a spare minute and haven't already done so, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes as it is a key way that new audience members can find their way to our humble podcast. Please be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Heat Rocks Pod. You can find a link to our Facebook group on our webpage, heatrockspod.com. That's where we'll post show notes for every episode, including a track listing of everything you've heard today and other goodies. Again, that's at heatrockspod.com. Thanks for coming through, Jocelyn. Thank you for having me on. 
Hello, Heat Rockers. It's with a heavy heart that we here at Heat Rocks acknowledge the passing of DMX at just the age of 50. Um, We've just seen too many artists, especially rappers, uh, who have passed well before their time. For our OG listeners, you may remember that one of our earliest episodes, I think it was episode number four, so this goes back to 2017, was with Shea Serrano, one of the writers and podcasters with The Ringer, who brought in DMX's It's Dark and Hell is Hot to talk about, so we would absolutely direct uh, DMX fans to go back and listen to that episode. We decided to take out a excerpt from that interview, which will run in just a second, For DMX, rest in peace, rest in power. Now, in your book, The Rap Yearbook, when you write about DMX in your chapter about the most important song of 1998, which you identified as being the Rough Riders anthem, you say of DMX that he is, quote, the most compelling person you have ever considered, meaning you, Shea Serrano, have ever considered. Mm -hmm. Can you elaborate on that? What makes DMX so compelling to consider? Well, for me, it was a situation where prior to writing that book, my relationship with DMX was strictly based off of that album. So that I didn't know any background information. I didn't know how DMX became DMX. So when you're researching for the book, you, you we settle on the, the song that we're going to do, and then I'd spend like a month researching everything I can about this guy. So I, I started reading all of his stories about, like I read his autobiography, for example, or right. watch all of his interviews, and you start learning about this horrible childhood he had and this like very abusive environment he grew up in and then like his trouble with the law and we've got this whole super interesting compelling arc of this guy just sort of rising to power and then falling off a couple like it's very just interesting to me and there were little parts in it where I was like I can sort of identify with this on a much smaller scale and then other times it was like you read or you learn about all the stuff this guy's been through and it's surprising what he was able to pull out of that like a lot of his music, is, it's hard to tell when you first listen to it, but it, a lot of it is, is like drenched in this sort of hurtful love. Mm. And it's because of all the stuff that he's been through. So it's just, that's why it's so compelling to me. It's just like a good, it's a good story. Yeah. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.